Okay, we are finishing up Romans 9 through 11, or at least just about. We'll preach, um, we'll finish the sermons. Um, we're still going to have Palmer Robertson go through um, this topic and through his book, um, The Israel of God, but scheduling-wise, we couldn't get it until March. Um, so that's when that's going to happen. Um, and uh, so excited about that as well. It'll give us some time to kind of lean in and stay in the uh, subject matter, and it's not just one person talking. A uh, little, little chance for some dial- dialogue about that. So um, next week we start Romans 12, and we'll do one and two next week. If you remember how we did this, we started by reading the text together, all of it, all 9 through 11, and um, savoring it, but also wincing at times because it's some difficult texts. Then we asked our first question, did God fail? Then we asked another question, does God love everybody? Or does he love everybody in the same way? And now we're answering the third question, who are God's people? It's a very interesting thing to ask this question, who are God's people? Because it assumes that not everyone is, and the Bible does assume that not everyone is God's people, though he is the creator of all humanity, the creationhood of God, of all, of all. He doesn't always call himself father to all. And it's also dangerous because most times when people ask this question, they are 99.9% of the time assuming they are. I, I like to say no country has ever gone to war thinking God is not on our side. So, it's a big deal. It's also a big deal because there's no way to have this conversation in our day and age without talking about Judaism and Israel, church. There's no way to undo things like the Crusades. All these kinds of things. It all matters, and it's all part of the stories we tell ourselves when we answer this question. So I want to start there, but I also want to start with a couple caveats when we talk about who are God's people. And you can't do this without acknowledging this, and that is no other way to put it, but anti-Semitism has been a significant part of the history of God's church, of the church. It has been a purveyor of hatred and murderous prejudice towards Jewish people. Not all of the church and not all of the time, but the record is clear and it is not good. The church has actively oppressed Jewish peoples from its history and much of its history. There are no two ways about that. And the path forward is repentance and restoration, repairing what is broken. And one of the reasons I wanted to teach about these texts is because some of these texts, these very texts have been taken all out of whack, out of context, and used for the very evil things. They've used been to bring false fuel to hatred. And also another caveat is that there is a flip side to this. It is not an equal and opposite flip side. It is opposite, but equal by no means. That the modern church... Has also must also acknowledge sometimes a reckless allegiance to the city-state or the nation-state of Israel, 1948 kind of thing. This, a particular form called Christian Zionism, was popular among Protestants and evangelicals. It is a belief that some Christians that, that some Christians have that the return of the Jews to the Holy Land is a promise and a prerequisite for Jesus' return. They also often believe that the establishment of the geopolitical nation-state of Israel is somehow the same Israel of the Bible 
and that the creation of this nation state in 1948 is in line with biblical prophecy. Let me simply say this. I do not believe the Bible teaches this at all. It is based on a regretful translation and a perplexing interpretation. Now, good people believe it, but it's an overreading of the scriptures. And I'm going to let Palmer handle that one in March. You're welcome. But it's worth the conversation. So let's get to our question. Who are God's people? Even if you're not in churchy world, who are the chosen people of God? That's kind of easy answer. It's Israel, right? It's the people of God. He's the chosen. It's the ones he's chosen. His promise was to Abraham. I will be your God and you will be my people and I will make you a nation. A nation. I will bless you as a nation so that you'll be a blessing to everyone. God's people is Israel. Except for Paul asks the question, how, has God rejected his people? And he answers, by no means. But he does mean something different than we might naturally hear. For Paul and his hearers, him saying, no, God has not rejected Israel outright, means that, that, that it is proof of it that he's an Israelite himself. And he has come to this, uh, this saving faith. And he has this deep and kindness for his own countrymen, an ache for them. The promise is being fulfilled, though, he says, in me. So what does that mean? Because what he does is he actually, at one point, and this is one of the ones that's taken out of context, he calls Israel his own beloved, who he says he'd be accursed for. He says they're the enemy of the gospel. And then in the next verse, he says, they're also beloved because of the covenant. And he says, all Israel will be saved. But he starts the whole thing off with saying, all Israel's not Israel. So if you're confused, it's natural. So obviously, Paul is using these terms in several different ways. And yet there's this assumption in, in 9 through 11 that God has promised Israel that she would be his people. And as chapter 11 says, that that promise for Israel is irrevocable. And that is true. But the question is, who's Israel? Who are God's people, Israel? To help us what we might mean to do this, I figured we would just go through the scriptures on all the ways in which the Bible uses the term Israel. So you who are list makers, you can go ahead and do one to eight. This is going to be so fun for you. It's going to be great. Israel number one. The patriarch formerly known as Jacob. That was funny. Thank you. He's a dude who used to be named Jacob. He got that name change after wrestling with an angel. Israel. Israel is the contending, and El is God. He contended with God. He was a contender. He was Abraham's grandson, and so a patriarch of the promise. He was born to Isaac and Rebekah, and he had 12 sons, and those 12 sons become 12 tribes of? Thank you. And so now we go to our second definition. Israel number two. The biological descendants of Abraham. Because God's promise to create a people through Abraham and bless all the nations through his offspring, specifically through Jacob's line named Israel, the entire line of Abe's ancestors, Abraham's ancestors, are referred to Israel or the Jewish people. This means that if your ancestor is Abraham, you are Israel. 
Paul calls this, in chapters 9 through 11, children of the flesh. He means that biological children. That's what he's saying. That's Israel number two. Then there's Israel number three. So as time went on and these families became tribes and they became a community, it grew. They became not just a family but a people and it grew into a community that was a theocracy governed by God, like the Moravians were, but different which was the case for hundreds of years before they moved from a theocracy to a monarchy, still governed by God, but having a king. So that's when it becomes a nation, or in that, that time, it's becoming a nation. Not exactly in the sense of a nation that we have now, but close enough for our purposes. And they had this theocracy, then the monarchy, and the monarchy lasted for, th- lasted for three kings before it split under a civil war. Uh, I hope y'all aren't getting bored on this. This is like, this is what just rolling through. Okay, so definition number four. When the monarchy had three rounds of kings, it split. And it split from the north and the south. And the north was called Israel. And the south was called Judah. So you have Israel referring to the northern kingdom. Now the northern kingdom doesn't last very long. All their kings were scalawags. Before you knew it, they were being taken over by the Assyrians, and they were in exile. Then you have the definition number, so that's definition number four. Definition number five, this one's a little tricky. It didn't come too far until, well, Judah also, they had a couple more good kings, but as a whole, they were a bunch of scalawags too. They were taken over by Babylon, and they were also, though a couple hundred years later, um, they were also exiled as well. When they were exiled, sometimes those two groups of exiled people were called Israel, okay, for a couple hundred years, just to make everything interesting, all right? All right, two more times for now. Number, nine, uh, number six, there is no nine. Uh, number six is simply the land that Israel lived in, sometimes called the Holy Land, Promised Land. It's a geographic area, though the Bible... It's not unclear, but it's not exactly clear where all those boundaries fit. But it's the actual land where the kingdom of Israel was. Now, there's all sorts of fussing about this geography, if you haven't noticed. And whether or not that promise, or God promised this land to be descendants, to be to the descendants of Abraham forever, it all depends on which definition you mean. And what you're doing with 1948, right? Let's just suffice it to say, the vast majority of my den- our denomination's pastors do not believe that that promise is still live because we believe that it has been fulfilled in Jesus, both in his incarnation and his reign as far as the curse is found. But you can talk to Palmer about that as well in March. You're welcome again. But I want you to pause here for a second and just be a little bit overwhelmed because we're making all these distinctions and nuances and doing all that kind of stuff. But, but this is pretty incredible if your heritage is this story. This is an amazing reality. I mean, the Hawaiians were cool and all, but not this cool. The Italians are cool and all, but not this cool. I'm Hawaiian and Italian, by the way. Um, you know, it's just amazing. I was reading an article um, 
um, just came out by David Brooks, actually, who I think is having a conversion experience, if not fully had it. Um, but he writes about, he writes an article called Jesus is a Jew. Super helpful article. It's in Comment Magazine. It's online. I, I recommend it to you. But this is what he says. To be a Jew in Jesus's day was not to embrace a religion or to practice a faith. They didn't even have these concepts yet because secularism doesn't even exist. Judaism was an enveloping life path, a total worldview, a covenantal relationship, a way of living out and searching for truth. It starts with this claim that of all the many peoples of the earth, God had chosen this one scraggly little band on the eastern edge of a Judean hill country to be his people and the recipients of his covenant and grace. And as N.T. Wright puts it, the sheer absurdity of this claim from the standpoint of any other worldview is staggering. I think that's right. And I think there's a, there's a right kind of, um, Paul talks about the bad pride involved, but there's a right cherishing, a right kind of pride that one should have if that is part of the legacy of your family story. There's a good in that, and it should be received as such. And yet when Paul through 9 through 11 is talking about Israel, most of the times, or a significant portion of the times, he's actually talking about none of these one through six, but he's talking about definition number seven. And definition number seven is the children of the promise. That's the language he uses versus the children of the flesh. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 9 when he says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as his offspring. Does this make sense? There's a distinction in there. You see what he's saying, right? Not all who are of the kingdom, land, or genealogy of Israel are children of God. The people of God's promise are. Paul says that this has always been the case. This is why he's constantly going back to the Old Testament to give examples of it. There's always a people in and outside of the nation that were part of the people, which is why he points to Hosea to help sustain his argument. Now, sometimes other people call it spiritual Israel. But even in the Old Testament, it says things like, Israel's marked by, not by circumcision alone, but by circumcision of the heart. That's, a very, that's an Old Testament statement, Right? There's a believing Israel or an elect Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Only the children of the promise are. And what Paul is saying in Romans 9 through 11 is that the followers of Jesus, Jew or Gentile, are children of the promise. They are spiritual Israel. They are, and that's why it says, and that includes Jews and Greeks. And indeed, he says to Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And, who were, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place, now this is space now, think land, where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be called sons of the living God. This is so true and so significant of a, of a seeming shift that it, you're, you may be tempted to say, this is actually definition number eight. The church is Israel. But that is not the case. It's not even 7b. What he's saying is the children of the promise have always been around. 
Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's an Old Testament quote. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of them all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And another Old Testament quote. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's talking about children of the promise. One commenter writes, The Bible does not juxtapose Israel and the church. In the Bible, the church is Israel, and Israel is the church. The church has always been the Israel of God, and the Israel of God has always been the church. When he means by the church there, and the Israel of God, is he means those who are children of the promise. It recognizes that the children of the promise was a temporarily administered th- uh, through a typological national people, but the churches has always existed, or we should say the children of the promise always existed under Adam, under Noah, in Abraham, under Moses, David, and now the Christ. The church doesn't replace Israel. It is Israel in this sense of the word. The church has always been the children of the promise, the Israel of heart, under any various administrations, under types, shadows, and now under the reality of Israel's Messiah, Jesus the Christ. So the New Testament church has not replaced the Jewish people. Paul says they grafted them in. That's not a replacement. That's not a replacement at all. That's a joining in. It's addition, not replacement. Think about this. Paul talks to the Galatians, and he's talking to Jews and Gentiles, and he calls them the Israel of God in chapter 6. Peter, in talking about churches in Asia Minor, almost completely Gentile. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Hebrews says... Those who call on the name of Christ are the house of Israel. This is all definition seven Israel. This is what the language of engrafting is all about. The tree is God's people. It's a fulfillment of this promise. We call upon the name of Jesus and we are grafted into that. We are this wild olive shoot, right? But we get grafted in. And the cool thing is that those who rejected the promise, who had rejected the previous promise, can be fully brought in if they don't continue in their unbelief, he says. They'll be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them back in again. I want to show you what we showed the kids last week, because um, it's just really cool. And the reason I like it so much, I'm only going to do the first two minutes. The reason I like it so much is because it gives you this picture of this engrafting that, uh, that goes along in, in the beauty of all the diversity of, of peoples, if you will, if, you're, if you use the metaphor back and forth, the peoples that belong to this tree, to this children of the promise, to this Israel. And by the way, a stone fruit is one with a pit in it. I had to look that up. So let's go. The tree of 40 fruit is a single fruit tree that grows over 40 different types of stone fruit including peaches, plums, apricots, nectarines, cherries, and almonds. The idea came from just sort of fascination with the process of grafting. When I had seen it done as a child, it was Dr. Seuss and Frankenstein and just about everything fantastic. I started traveling around Central New York and New York State to look for different varieties of stone fruit 
eventually I was able to find these different heirloom and antique varieties, but they are very rare, so I would bring them back here to my nursery, wrap them under a tree, so that I could continue to use them. Now I have a huge collection of plums and apricots. Through the project, I've, I've worked with a lot of growers, and at first they didn't understand because they were why would you want to have a tree with that many different fruit on it? You would have to go back over and over to continue to harvest all the fruit. The project is, for me, always an art project. I was really interested in the idea of a hoax in terms of, you know, a hoax transforms reality. Part of the idea for the tree of 40 fruit was to plant them in locations that people would sort of stumble upon. But once they happened upon one of these trees, they'd start to question, why are the leaves shaped differently? Why are they different colors? And then in summer, when you would see all of these different fruit growing on them, and of course in spring when they blossom different colors. It is an artwork. I just, every time I look at it, I find another metaphor for the church. This incredible fruit that has to be cultivated all the time. He, it, it's, it's on National Geographic. It's so worth just watching and, and giving yourself to. It's such a beautiful thing. It's an artwork, and it's this holy hoax that God has created to have you see things differently. And it's called his church. It's called his Israel. And this Israel is producing this fruit and bringing people in, bringing all sorts of different kinds of people in and grafting them in because of his kindness and his love. And it makes you think about the world differently. It makes you think of him differently. Okay. I'm going to try to land this bird in the next five minutes or so. <laughs> Fifteen minutes or so. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Israel equals the children of the promise equals the church. That's one big equals. But there are marks of the people that have always existed. And that primary mark that, I don't even know if I should call it primary, that's essential mark to grasping this in 9 through 11 and throughout the whole scriptures is the recognition that you become a people of God because of God's grace and mercy. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. If it's by grace, it's no longer about your works. Other grace, grace wouldn't even be grace. What marks the children of God, our relationship to him, our adoption to, uh, in him, is that we live there because of his grace and mercy and kindness. Not our ethnicity or bad ethnicity or good ethnicity or any of that. That's actually what distinguishes, even in the history of Israel, the difference between what was all Israel and Israel. Is when people were missing that. Those who believed they were saved by their works and their self-righteousness were Israel, but they weren't Israel. All those who believed they were saved by mercy and God's grace were Israel 7, the children of the promise. Look, Adam didn't even know about Jesus or what would happen with Judaism. Judaism didn't exist when Adam was around. There would be no one to do, nothing to do but, cr- but trust the one who said, trust the words of one who said that he would crush the serpent's head, and he trusted God's promise that he would bring about that reality by his grace. 
Noah didn't know anything about Abraham or Jewish anything or Jesus. King David or his son, but he trusted God's promise to rescue him and his family and start anew by his grace. Saul, who was the first king of the monarchy, never trusted God and his promise. He was always trying to earn God's favor, maneuver himself into the blessing. And he was the first king of Israel, and he wasn't Israel. Number seven. And you can go on and on until Jesus, son of David, son of God, the child of the promise given for the children of promise. All of those looked forward to Jesus' coming, and now we look back to him. The true mark of Israel is this life by grace and this life by grace that is in Jesus. Which leads me to the number eight definition. Now y'all waiting for it. The number eight definition of Israel is actually Jesus. He is called the true Israel. Bear with me here. I want to take you through the Gospels of one particular Matthew. Matthew exquisitely and forcefully declares that Jesus is the true Israel by the very structure of his book. He actually traces and outlines his gospel as the life and fulfillment of the true Israel. When Jesus goes down to Egypt and comes out of Egypt, he escapes a wicked king through the salvation of the firstborn of sons, and then he goes through the water. And we're just in chapter 3 of Matthew. Right? Israel and Moses. He declared the year of the Lord's favor Isaiah, and then entered into the wilderness. First four, uh, chapter 4. He went up the mountain, 5 through 7, and comes down the mountain. Chapter 8. 11 through 12, Jesus is compared with David and Solomon. In 13, Jesus gives the parables of the kingdom, like Solomon. In 14 through 17, a wicked king opposes God, God's uh, prophet, John the baptizer, right? Just like another one, Elijah. Oh, wait, there's a guy who comes after Elijah with a double portion who starts doing miracles everywhere. Huh? That sound like Elijah and Elisha? Then a prophet comes into the temple in Jerusalem and speaks against it. In 24 and 25, he speaks about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age, i.e. Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then in 26 through 28, Jesus experiences the most exilic, exiled, ripped away from your, your, uh, your home in his death, in his separation from the Father. And then, on the third day, he is risen by the power of Yahweh and is restored to his rightful place. Why is this a clear recap of Israel? Because Jesus came to do everything Israel failed to do. In fact, there's only one remnant of Israel. There's a remnant of one, and his name is Jesus, and he is the true Israel. And our connection to being right with God is only connected to him. Jesus was two through seven Israelite, so he could become number eight Israel for us. Greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than David and Solomon, greater than the temple itself. Jesus is the one who took the covenant curses of the law on himself. In the place of his own people, making a people for himself. And then he kept the law of God perfectly in order to secure the covenant blessings for Israel. Seven. As Israel ate. And now we're grafted in. Jew and Greek alike. Y'all, for the last four weeks, we've been wrestling through this very difficult set of passages, 9 through 11. 
about very tough sets of verses. And we've been trying to kind of be provocative about how we ask these questions about, does he fail? Does he love everyone in the same way? Who are his people? And that's fine. But please, please, if you enter back into 9 through 11 in your readings, please remember how Paul ends. It's simply in magnifying who Jesus, this Messiah of Israel is, the true Israel himself, who is a blessing to the nations as he brings them in under his reign. Who are God's people? It's not a certain nation or ethnic group called Israel. The answer is not everyone, but it is anyone who will call upon Jesus, the true Israel. Let me add a kind of funnier but also really beautiful story to end. I don't know if you know who Arthur Burns was, but he was the chairman of the Fed, um, economic counselor to all sorts of presidents from Eisenhower to Reagan. He was also Jewish um, by, I understand, birth and belief. In the 70s, he began attending an informal White House group for prayer and fellowship. Uh, I've been um, wanting to watch The Family on Netflix, so this is wigging me out a little bit. But um, no one, in fact, knew quite why he was there or how he got involved in the group. Um, but one week, as the meeting ended, a newcomer who didn't know that Barnes was the Burns was Jewish, asked him to close the time in prayer. Without missing a beat, Burns reached out, held hands with the others in the circle, and prayed this prayer. And the reason I love this so much is because of the centrality of Jesus in it. So he starts this. Lord, I pray that Jews would come to know Jesus Christ. And I pray that Buddhists would come to know Jesus Christ. And I pray that Muslims would come to know Jesus Christ. And then he stopped and he said, And Lord, I pray that Christians would come to know Jesus Christ. Amen. End of prayer. Look, 9 through 11, amazingly complex, real simple. Jesus is at the center of it all. He demands and deserves our full worship that we would come to him. Let's pray. Thank <laughs> you.